Hello, friends. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Mary Harrington. She's a writer and contributing editor at Unheard. It's hard to say that either men or women have a firm place to stand right now. The age-old wisdom, which both groups traditionally relied on, is out of the window, and we're TikTok dancing our way through an existential apocalypse where girl bosses and men going their own way battle it out for nihilistic supremacy. I wanted Mary to help me conduct a post-mortem. Expect to learn why the porn you start out watching is going to lead you down a dark rabbit hole, how the introduction of the pill led to fewer weddings and more awkward situations for women, why men need their own spaces back, what Mary thinks about the pornification of everything, why young girls are developing Tourette's from TikTok, and much more. Mary's writing is some of the best stuff that I've found on the internet over the last couple of months, so you should go and check that out if you enjoy what you hear today. Also, you should go and get the Modern Wisdom reading list, which is free, and there is 100 books that you need to read before you die. It's my favorite books from the last few years. You can get it right now by going to chriswillx.com slash books. It will sign you up to my three-minute Monday newsletter as well. That's chriswillx.com slash books. In other news, this episode is brought to you by The Cold Plunge, a revolutionary cold plunge that uses powerful cooling, filtration and sanitation to give you cold, clean water whenever you want it, making it far superior to an ice bath or a chest freezer. I am a huge fan of cold therapy. I try and do it as much as I can. And the difference between doing it in a shower or doing it in a proper plunge tub is pretty profound. It is fantastic for longevity, for your immune system. It's great for making you just feel more awake and alert and in a better mood throughout the day. The cold plunge is safe for indoor or outdoor use and installation is truly plug it in and you can begin to use it. You fill your plunge up with a hose, turn it on, set your temperature down to 39 degrees Fahrenheit and you're all set to go. If you've been thinking that you want to add cold therapy into your routine more consistently, this is the solution for you. Also, you can get $150 off by going to thecoldplunge.com and using the code MW150 at checkout. That's thecoldplunge.com and MW150 for $150 off at checkout. And if you want to have a look at international shipping, just email info at thecoldplunge.com. In other, other news, this episode is brought to you by Praxis Careers. Praxis Apprenticeship Program helps you to break out of the classroom and into an awesome career with a fast-growing business without student debt. It's a year-long apprenticeship program that combines skills bootcamp and a full-time paid job at a growing business. You get six months of professional development in a bootcamp to help build hard and scoff scoffed skills, soft skills. Then you land a full-time job at a growing business in sales, marketing, or operations. There's coaching and mentorship along the way to help you get started and thrive in your career long-term. Plus, you get lifetime access to the Praxis Network as a graduate. There's over 500 graduates of the program with an average of $50,000 starting salary at graduation. They've been running a college alternative since 2014 and have a network of tech startups and growing businesses that are eager to hire hardworking young talent with no degree required. If you're someone who wants to build a fulfilling and successful career in the business world, then this is a great solution. You are helped to figure out what career paths are best for you and then to get started through real world experience. Apprentices gain the skills, network and confidence to drive careers on their own and alumni go on to start their own businesses, grow into leadership positions inside of high growth startups and achieve personal and financial freedom. Head to 
discoverpraxis.com slash modernwisdom. That's discover, P-R-A-X-I-S dot com slash modernwisdom to download their program guide and schedule a call with a practice advisor to learn more about the program and applications are open for 2022 cohorts. That's discoverpraxis.com slash modernwisdom. Oh, and they take international students from everywhere. And in final news, this episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. You are not eating enough fruit and vegetables in your life, and you know it, and this is going to help. It's difficult to get the right micronutrients that you need, even if you are having the most robust and varied diet that you can, and it's a great solution to have a greens powder which is going to make you feel confident every single day that you are giving your body what it needs. If you're trying to make a good nutritional change in 2022, this is the foundation that you can build everything else off. One scoop of Athletic Greens contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, pre- and pro probiotic, green superfood blend, and more that all work together to fill the nutritional gaps in your diet. It increases energy and focus, aids with digestion, and supports a healthy immune system, all without the need to take multiple products or pills. It's even NSF certified for sports in the US, meaning that Olympic athletes use it, and the recipe has been updated 53 times over the last decade. It's lifestyle-friendly, whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free, and it contains less than one gram of sugar. Also, you get a year's free supply of vitamin D, five free travel packs, free pots, shakers, and a 60-day money-back guarantee, so you can buy it and try it for 59 days, and if you do not like it, they will give you your money back. Head to athleticgreens.com slash modernwisdom to get all of that, plus the 60-day money-back guarantee. That's athleticgreens.com slash modernwisdom. But now, please welcome Mary Harrington. Mary Harrington, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I spent a couple of days in New York with a friend. I'm not around young children. I don't have any children, at least ones that I'm aware of. And I got to see the tyranny that is bedtime. Uh, And (laughs) from my perspective, you can tell me if this is true, right? To me, it seems like a daily game theoretic, litigative negotiation with a tiny drunk tyrant uh, that happens <laughs> every single day on an evening at pretty much the same time. How accurate of a representation is that? Well, I th- yes, maybe. Some t- I, it depends a lot on your child's personality and it depends a little bit on how you roll as a parent as well. Um, what I mean by that is um, if you if you treat small children as rational beings who need to be negotiated with, then you're, you're letting yourself in for a world of pain. Um, but if you treat them as something a little bit more like dogs that need to be trained, and I say that with love, um, as a mother who really very profoundly loves her daughter, um, and, you, and you start doing that very lovingly and very firmly from a young age, you know, with luck and patience, um, you'll have a child who likes a bedtime routine, who's familiar with it, and who's 
when they get to a point of tiredness, just goes, oh, okay, now I'm in the groove. Now I know what's coming next. And they'll just chill out. And then bedtime becomes a relaxing thing. So it depends on a number of different factors. I mean, also how many kids you have. You know, if you've got three, then, you know, that harmonious sort of twinkly, twinkly, twinkly kind of thing isn't quite so straightforward because they all want different things. And, you know, my dear friend who has three under five, um, you know, it's, it's a, it's, it is a little bit more like crowd control. Um, you know, you've got one one screaming for milk while the other one is um, throwing poo at the wall or whatever, you know, it's a, it, it's a, it's a different ballgame. But, but I think, but the idea, the goal is, is to have a routine that everybody just kind of falls into and you know where you are with things. And, and actually it's more like, it's more like, uh, it's, it, it, it's about training the unconscious mind so that you can, you can think less about the stuff that doesn't matter, you know, and that way it's like doing a kata in martial arts, you know, is this teaching teaching the body to react instinctively, and I think that's very much that's very much the approach that I'm in favour of when it comes to very small children. I saw the group of three that you were talking about. I think that definitely contributed. There was a, a point we were sat down sat down having dinner, and I think the oldest two had gone to bed, and then there was a a point at which a naked three year old just came sprinting through the dining room, uh, and then dived dive bombed onto the couch. And there's a mother sort of frantically chasing after going, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. But uh, yeah, I'm uh, glad that, that negotiating uh, or whatever it is, the training, I think that needs to happen before there should be, there should be some sort of onboarding prep school for that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it, I guess in that sense, I'm quite old fashioned. You know, there are, there are parents who take the view that, you know, children, children will naturally spontaneously know what's good for them in all possible respects and you should just be guided by them. I'm not really, I'm not really a believer in that. You know, I'm, I'm very, I'm very much more classical in the view that, you know, children have to be habituated to the good and that's actually part of your responsibility as a parent. And they'll still, they'll still be, you know, they'll do their best to thwart you in every possible way. And some are more thwarty than others. Um, that's very much a sort of <laughs> more personality thwarty. thing. That's, that's something that all children can aspire to be, to be thwarty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they all they all have their they all have their ways of being forty, but um, yeah, I, I think it's it's your responsibility to try and habituate them to the good, even if they don't appreciate it at the time, and even if they don't realise it until like twenty five years later, you still have to try. Yeah, I think that's that's all you really can do. Given the fact that you spend a good bit of time on Twitter, and this has probably been one of the most intense weeks on Twitter ever, what's your what's your sense? Give me the aura that's in the air. How apocalyptic has this week been? What's the shittiest stuff that you've seen on Twitter? I've been, honestly, I've been trying to dial the noise down on the whole Ukraine thing on the basis that it's not really my wheelhouse. It's not my area of expertise. None of us knows what's happening on the ground because it's just wall-to-wall propaganda from about at least five different, I mean, I can think of two obvious interest groups and probably another three um, less obvious interest groups who've all got a stake in skewing the story one way or another. And then and then you've got this absolutely insane free-for-all of people piling into different fandoms to just nice treating it as a massively multiplayer online role-playing game. Um, and the whole thing's honestly just doing my head in. Um, because it's like the signal to noise ratio is terrible. Um, and this and I have no I have no useful contribution to make, so I've just been trying to keep the noise down. Um, someone told me someone sent me a, a big email with a bunch of stuff about Ukraine that was really interesting. One of them was the current Wikipedia article about the Ukraine-Russia crisis in February 2020 to 
has over 20,000 words written in it and more than 500 contributors now. So you are literally live streaming a modern war. You know, I'm seeing videos on Twitter, like TikTok. TikTok, apparently the Ukrainian troops were using Grinder to locate where the Russian troops were at. Did you see this? I shit you not. Yeah, and I mean, there's something there's something just so wild about that, and honestly, deeply unnerving. I mean, I've, I've sort of, I, I set out to write a review of a of a, a woman's written this memoir about raising her transgender child, and I sat down to write the write a review of that book this week, um, should one later this week, um, and I ended up I ended up writing about um, the parallel universes that are formed in digital culture. Because, well, let, let, let me explain. I mean, for me, you're, you're probably you're familiar with my writing. You know, you're, I'm sure you've you, you, my, my views on my views on trans rights are that they're, they're not then. Well, it's, it's complicated. It's a difficult issue that needs to be approached sensitively, put it that way. Um, and it's and reading reading this book, which was obviously very sincerely written by a woman who loves her daughter, very, loves her child very much indeed, uh, really, really wants to do the right thing. Um, it was like going down, it was just like diving feet first into a completely parallel universe. Um, you know, a lot of the same talking points that I'm familiar with for reference, but with completely, completely antagonistic interpretations on them. You know, the, the same the same sets of facts, but carefully curated to tell a completely contradictory story. It was completely disorienting. It was like being in the upside down. Um, and, I, and I read through this whole thing. I found it, I had to sort of, I had to sort of stop and stop and just kind of take a few breaths every every few pages and just think she believes this as completely and as sincerely as the people as the people who pit themselves absolutely against her do you know every, everybody really really believes this certitude on and both just, sides yeah completely and there's no there's no reconciling these two points of view it's, it's absolutely the, the contest is absolutely zero sum and i don't know where you go from there and i was thinking well you know this is this is a serious enough thing when we're talking about the bodies of children you know that's actually what's at stake in in that particular set of internet culture wars is the bodies of children, you know, the bodies of adults as well. But you know where 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 the rubber really hits the road and where the fights get really bitter is the bodies of children. And then you think, well, you know, and then you then you scale that up to the bodies of civilians in an entire national international conflict, and you know, and then then you're then you're then you're really you know that 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 escalates the intensity of the fandom and it escalates the the, the the bitterness of the culture war to to just an unimaginable degree, um, and I honestly I I don't see I, I don't see how that can be resolved. And I, you know, and, and I've been I've been watching the watching the temperature go up and up and up this week, and thinking, yeah, you know, ne- never again am I going to wonder how it was that the entirety of Europe memed itself into you know massive into a world war in 1914. Because that's that's kind of what happened at that point, and it feels like that's that's you know if, unless we take a few deep breaths and step away, you know, and, and a lot of people step away from the keyboard and touch grass, that's what we're going to do. We're going to meme ourselves into international nuclear war, and that's fucking terrifying. It's people spending you know, too much time too much time on the internet. So I went to I went to a meetup in Austin uh, this weekend. Do you know who Scott Alexander is from Astral Codex Ten? Yeah, so he he held a meetup in Austin, and he sent that out to his entire mailing list, which is probably not too far off half a million people. And obviously, a very mm-hmm. very very small number of those are in the states that are in the proximity to get to Austin or whatever. But I met I met a guy who spends eight hours a day in virtual reality. 
I met people that are uh, moderators of 4chan, moderators of 8chan, uh, moderators on Reddit boards, you know, people like real, real internet people. And um, yeah, it's it's so fascinating to think about what happens when you go web first into life uh, and the yeah. externalities and the, the, the assumptions that people have about how they're supposed to live. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess that's a theme that recurs fairly often in my work. Um, it's, it comes up a lot for me because I'm probably the last generation to have grown up in the before times. Um, I'm 42, which puts me right on the cusp of, of the internet, or really the social media age, which is where it, where it went supernova. You know, I mean, there were nerds who were on the internet for a good 20 years before I was. But, you know, we got our first online connection when I was in 1997, I think, and I had my first email address at university. So, you know, I can remember actually doing research in libraries. I, I went all the way through school without even a mobile phone. Um, I remember the four times. It was a completely different world. Um, you know, I know, I know there, were lots, there were lots of people who were sort of nostalgic for the 1990s because, you know, culture was a thing then. I, I don't know. I could, yeah, I have a few things to say about that. But, but, but it, was, it was completely different. Um, and there's been, a, there's been this weird sense of, like, some things have just stood still since the internet arrived. You know, we don't really have teen, teenage subcultures anymore, for example, as far as I can make out. You know, I mean, if there are teenagers out there who can correct me on this. What, what do you mean by that? About it. Well, well, but it, like, I was, I was a boss. In, I was an emo. In, right, okay. Yeah, <laughs> you, you see, you know what I'm talking about. Um, but like, you know, but in, the, in the before times, you know, you, like what you need for a teenage subculture is, is like, it's the, the right alchemy of boredom and sexual frustration and a limited social sphere. And, um, and, and various factors like that, and then a lot of spare time and not very much mobility or, or pocket money, you know, and you need all of those things to make it to make it come together. Um, and if you can find your people just like that, just by searching, then you don't ever you don't ever end up with the sort of, you know, the the, the happenstance collection of misfits that creates a that, that's, that's the sort of spark you need for a teenage subculture. to happen Why? In a, in a place. Why? Well, I mean, if you think about like they're all they're all very bound by place. Like the subcultures as they emerge, they they, they start out very sort of place bound. Um, you mean and, geographically? I mean whole, yeah, geographically. I mean Manchester, which you you may you probably remember. I mean, you know, the punk thing in the nineteen seventies was that was all that was all the angry council estate kids in you know, in, in grumpy grumpy industrial towns. You know, not really seeing much much of a future and not seeing much of the much of the good life. Um, and you know, seeing seeing the nineteen sixties turn sour on them, um, you know, they're all they're all very bound by place and location, and then it becomes an aesthetic, and then it becomes commercialized, and then it sells out to the man, and then there's this cycle which sort of, you know, I remember, you know, which starts accelerating, you know, from the from the sixties onwards, you know, that that line in in Withnell and I, which I'm sure you've seen, you, you know, the film Withnell and I. No, you've never seen that film. No, oh, what man. is it? Oh, it's it's a. Oh, it's a, it's a Richard E. Grant um, and Paul McGann um, from the mid nineteen eighties. It's an absolute cult classic, um, all about all about these two um, completely completely disreputable failing actors at the end of the nineteen sixties um, who, who who spend a weekend in Penrith with with one of their one, one of their pederastic uncle. Oh, I mean you you have you have to see it, but I mean it's it's about it's about repression and it's about the end of the nineteen sixties and it's about new subcultures falling apart and it's about whether you know the meaning of forced selling out to the it's a it's a great film. It's an but there's this there's this line right at the end where 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 Danny, the drug dealer, says, 
They're selling happy, happy wigs in Woolworths now. You know, the greatest decade <laughs> in the history of man has just come to an end. And we have failed to paint it black. Is that the death knell, do you think, of a movement um, if it gets featured in, like if there's a WH Smith's end, <laughs> end of aisle stall with a cardboard cutout of whatever it is? Well, yeah, but if you think about it, you know, th- think about, think about what, the, what the cycle time is now between something appearing on the internet and, and the being merch of it. Like it doesn't even have time to go through a sort of buyer's, a, a, a product buying process to get into Woolworths. You know, there were Ghost of Kiev t-shirts on in, in Etsy, you know, within 48 I hours. I saw of the, tea, the tea towel of a yeah, exactly. uh, fucky Russian ship. Exactly, exactly. You know, when it, when they when the cycle between meme the the sort of meme to merchandise cycle is like less than forty eight hours, um, there's there, there's no there's there's no space in which a culture can even a subculture as you can even emerge, let alone sell out. Oh, the cycle's too short. okay. And because as soon as you start to commercialize something, much of this seductiveness about the movement has been taken away because it's not subversive or cool or niche anymore. Is that the reason um, yeah. that it that it shortcuts? Yeah, it? yeah, 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 yeah. And I mean, like, cool. Like, a, a subculture will start out being a, being a cool group of kids, and then the the people will just people start jumping on the bandwagon, and then you know more and more people will pile in, and then eventually they're selling hippie wigs in Woolworths. Yes, at least that's how it used to work in the before times. But the cycle just goes too fast now. Yeah, it's direct from meme to Woolworths. Yeah, 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 yeah. and the, within forty eight hours. So they're just, I mean, you know, and, and I don't know what, what you, honestly, I think the closest thing we have to youth subcultures now is ticks, like TikTok-induced uh, Tourette's and, and emoji pronouns and stuff like that. <laughs> Sorry, have you ever heard, did you hear, have you heard about this? So I've heard, like, I, know, no, I, I know about pronouns on Twitter, but I, I don't know what yeah, emoji, no, a, you're making me feel, Mary, you're making me feel like the biggest boomer ever. <laughs> I'm 34 years old, and I'm being made to feel well, like um, a fucking boomer. Oh yeah, I, I should. I, I clearly need to touch grass. Clearly, need it's to you. Off. It's you that you're speaking <laughs> to here. So, what? What's a TikTok tick, so, and what's an emoji um, pronoun? No, this is this is a this is an article that Helen Lewis wrote recently at the Atlantic. At least I think she she certainly did, I think she's written an article about it. And there's been the Tourette's clinics. All over, all over the place, are seeing an epidemic of a new variant of Tourette's, which doesn't seem to have the same etiology as classical Tourette's, which can be treated with antipsychotics. But that seems to be being caused by the internet. You know, people people are coming in like kids. They're usually they're usually teenage girls, and they're coming in with often with exactly or more or less exactly the same tics as um, influencers with Tourette's on social media. What would so that, have you ever seen what the, or has it ever been described what this sort of tick is? Because I, I can't imagine you know, what that would be. They'll, they'll, you know, they think like saying saying particular a particular word. I can't I can't remember the, an example. But they're sort of random stuff like you know saying cucumbers spontaneously in the middle of a sentence, or or you know falling to their knees and you know, waving their hands. You know, just odd sort of gestures or spasmodic ticks. Um, and and girls appear to be, especially teenage girls, appear to be catching this off influencers who display those symptoms on TikTok. Fuck me! So this is like some sort of uh, mimetic modelling of high status social behaviour, at least within one particular niche, that's been yeah. delivered through through uh, social media. Oh my yeah, god! Yeah, and I think I mean this is probably this is probably the closest we have now to youth subcultures. 
What, some um, sort of parasitic sort of... psychological contagion that gets girls on TikTok to do, like, I know, duck faces spontaneously out of nowhere? I mean, it's not massively different to the Ice Bucket Challenge, really, is it? The Ice Bucket Challenge was conscious. This appears to be subconscious. Anyone that tips a bucket of ice over their head subconsciously, they ha- that's, a, that's a serious tick. Right, right. but, but what my point is, my point is it's still a meme. And it's still, it, it, and it's transmitting through the same, the same vectors and, and to a degree with the same, for, to, to, to the same ends. I don't know. I mean, the sort of weird esoteric corners of the internet where people mutter about the fact that these memes are in a sense alive and independent of us. But, you know, I don't really want to speculate about people that. People don't have ideas. Ideas have people. Yeah, I mean, that's a, I, I wouldn't be the first person to, to contemplate that. But, you know, you watch, you watch something like this rip through impressionable populations and you think, well, you know, maybe there's something to it. And then you watch, you watch an entire... You know, a, 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 an entire international population of social media addicts, you know, seemingly memeing themselves into, you know, thinking that maybe nuclear war would be such a bad idea. And you think, well, actually, it's not just ice bucket challenges. Yeah. And it's not just but t- to them, teenage girls uh, on TikTok. To them, the externalities of talking about this stuff is basically the same. Talking about- yeah, because I mean, because I, I mean, I think they're just not really thinking about it. You know, there's, there's a whole class of people who were like, yeah, yeah, we should lock down. And it didn't actually make very much difference to them. You know, and I'm, I'm sure, you know, somewhere in the lizard brains, they're assuming that Ocado is still going to be delivering groceries after nuclear Armageddon. And then they haven't really thought it through. <laughs> Shit the yeah, bed. I, what? Shit the bed. Yeah, I mean, that's that's about where I am this week. You know, you said, what's the vibe? And I'm like, Apocalyptic. It's, 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 a, it's, it's a, not good, man. It's, it's a good. blend of sort of nihilism sort of apocalyptic Cassandra complex and apathy, which is nice, which is a nice place to be, actually, I think. Let's talk about, I want to talk about this war on relationships that you've been thinking about. The last few months for me, I've been completely submerged in evolutionary psychology and looking at trends in dating dynamics. You might be familiar with Vincent Harinam, uh, who has done some stuff for Quillette alongside Rob Henderson, who Again, okay. like yeah, here's yeah. my here's my fucking advert for Rob Henderson. Everyone needs to go and follow him on Twitter because he's like one of the best people on Twitter. Um, talk to me about this war on relationships. What's that? Um, well, I mean, it's my, my my mo is always meme first, ask question later. And I started I started saying war on relationships before I'd really come to come to the decision about what I meant by it. Um, <laughs> uh, and it's, when I talk about a war on relationships, I'd like to be clear: I'm not just talking about um, the, the breakdown of relationships between men and women. Um, I mean, it's a, my working hypothesis is that that's kind of that's about where we are with it right now. But it opens out to a much more wholesale um, war on our ability to on on spontaneous interpersonal social reactions which are not mediated by the market. I mean, that's that's quite a long thesis which I'm in the middle of writing up as a book chapter at the moment for the book, which hopefully will come out towards the end of the year. If I can shamelessly plug that here, it's called Feminism Against Progress. You'll be back on. You'll be back uh, on to talk about that. So we'll yeah, shill, no, no, we'll I'm, shill I'm, it I'm re- multiple times. <laughs> I'm really excited about it, and it's it's an absolutely it's a it's a wild ride writing it. But yeah, I mean the my, the current chapter I'm working on is the one about the war on relationships, which which to my mind is about it's about destroying um, organic interpersonal relationships between people. Um, Except those which can be mediated through the market and commercialized. What's an example so, of that? Um, 
Well, I, I mean, actually, and, and that's that, that's really where the, the relations between men and women, you know, serve as a very powerful example. Um, because it, it seems to me that there's a, there's a fairly concerted effort to discourage men and women from just meeting and falling in love. You know, when women could be encouraged, for example, to offer their services on OnlyFans instead and monetize, monetize men's desire, or um, everybody could be persuaded to sign up to dating apps, which, um, you, know, increase, you know, encourage a sense of endless optionality and stop people and you know, discourage anybody from ever actually falling in love and getting off the dating apps because the grass could always be greener on the other side. Um, you know, in, in a, it sort of it de it unplugs um, the human longing for connection from other humans and plug, and and orders it instead to limit capitalism. You know, the, the kind of re- rewiring of all of our basic desires you know, to for, for, in the interests of profit. I mean, that prob- probably makes me sound like a completely unhinged um, anti-capitalist sort of you know Alex Jones type loony, but uh, but this is. You, once you once you start seeing the war in relationships, you you can't unsee it. You know, to, like pretty much every every facet of uh, COVID policy in effect, effectively served to support the war on relationships, um, because every everything which was banned came under the heading of spontaneous interpersonal interaction, um, and everything which was somehow which somehow made exception for came under the heading of human human interaction, which in some way serves the market. So, you know, going to church was banned. You know, go free, free fucking children's playgrounds were closed. You know, singing together was banned. You know, visiting your family in groups of more than a small number was banned. But somehow you were still allowed to go to the office. And somehow, you know, you were still allowed to go to shops. And somehow, you know, for a long time, you know, on and off, you were still allowed to go to pubs. You know, the only, the only contexts in which you were allowed to, to continue interacting with people was where money was, where, where there was a credit card involved in some form or another. And everything else was shoved online. Um, which again, you know, serves you know serves to monetize it in one form or another. Whether it, you know whether it's Zoom making the money, or I don't know, or, or OnlyFans or whatever. Um, you know, Zoom Zoom replaces family get-togethers, and OnlyFans replaces you know whatever it is that young single people do on a Friday night. Um, and so suddenly you're in a situation where all all all, all kinds of domains of spontaneous interpersonal, interpersonal relationships have been. Have been methodically destroyed and reordered to the market. Um, like it probably makes me sound like a tinfoil hatter, but that was that. That for me was the that, that that's the story of of what the pandemic did. I don't I don't think of it as a deliberate conspiracy, but in practice, that's what happened. So that really, at the sort of macro scale, is what I'm talking about when I talk about the war on relationships. What's this Korean untact policy thing? Oh my fucking god! Pardon my language, but oh my god. This is a, a South Korean policy which has accelerated over the course of the pandemic, which seeks to remove, eliminate all human contact in the interests of increasing productivity. So automating shops, um, automating libraries, um, just removing, removing any, any messy frictional situations where people are involved in interactions with one another. In you know just to turning everything into a sort of hyper mechanized set of vending machines in the interests of also they say increasing productivity, you know I mean it strikes me that they haven't really thought it through because you know, humans have some basic needs um, which include other humans, um, 
But I, I, I suspect that a lot of a lot of the people who come up with this stuff, you know, believe very firmly, as do as do a lot of progressives, that there is no such thing as human nature, and that in fact we can just be remodeled, um, you know, either to serve the greater good or to, to serve the interests of profit, or you know, perhaps those two things are the same thing, or whatever. You know, let's let's all just hope it turns out for the best. Rory Sutherland the- says that uh, Silicon Valley sees everything as an optimization problem. And he said this to me <laughs> three, three years ago, and I can't stop thinking about it. And it's not just Silicon Valley. It's that uh, rather than looking at it from a human-centric perspective, it's presumed to be some sort of engineering problem where if we can just get the right set of parameters and deploy them into the world, then all of the problems that we've got can be fixed. When you realize that the human brain is wholly irrational and the more that I learn about it, the less and less that I feel like I have conscious control over anything. Free will discussions aside, the fact that I'm just whatever rider with blindfolds on on the back of an elephant um, makes me think that, you know, when you when you are talking about this, if you're talking about increasing productivity and yet making someone go into this completely sterile Petri dish of a, of a supermarket and maybe not have their one conversation per day that they might have with somebody, which would be the person behind the checkout, then leads to this person killing themselves in two years' time because they've never had any intimate contact or any human contact with anybody. You go, uh, it's, it's far too reductive to think that this is an effective policy. And yet, because we're in this world where we no longer pray at the altar of human nature or of religious ideology the technological revolution has presented us with a new God that can fix all of the problems that we have in our lives. And if we follow that forward, you just think, well, it's just a technological problem. It's simply uh, an optimization issue where if we get the right logistics and the right parameters set, everything's going to be sorted. And it's not true. It's not true. You know, people people can't just be rewired like that. I mean, I don't know, maybe maybe if you set about, you know, conditioning people over the course of several generations, you know, perhaps you could perhaps you could have some effect. But, you know, what sort of monster would go? What sort of monster would do that? I don't know. I mean, maybe we're in the process of finding out. The Koreans, apparently. I've got this quote. I, I absolutely adored this quote from you in one of the articles. The consequence of liquefying all courtship rituals and sexual norms wasn't a feminist paradise of non-exploitative sex, but endemic intimate violence and a multi-billion dollar porn industry. But the utopians believe so firmly that human nature doesn't exist, that the same thing keeps being tried. What did you mean by that? Just that, really. Um, yeah, I mean, a, a recurring theme um, in idealistic efforts to break down existing norms, um, which, I mean, you can... You know, one way of looking at existing norms might be, you know, the sort of the the simplified stories we tell our children in order to make sure that humans don't keep making the same mistakes over and over again. You know, you could the, the nice simple heuristics. You know, you teach your child to go to bed regularly because you know you learn you've learned from experience, as I have, um, that you know if you, you go you go to bed at the same time every night, it just saves you a lot of hassle. When you get enough sleep, you feel good. You know, it's not rocket science. But you can't explain that to a one-year-old, so you you just you just train them like a dog to go to bed regularly, and then hopefully they'll carry on doing it when they get to adulthood. And I mean, you know, that's a, that's in, in microcosm. That's just what that's all traditions are, really. Um, and you know, sometimes sometimes they need to be junked if they just don't fit the conditions anymore. You know, if you've got traditions that applied to living in the desert, you know, three thousand miles away that just don't really make sense in in a temperate climate, then you know maybe maybe you need to rethink them. But you know, traditions like going to bed regularly. Uh, going to bed at the same time every night, you know, they still work. Lots of them still work. Why um, did? Why, um, why was it that 
the feminists, the, the paradise that they were looking for? Why did that not come about? Honestly, I think they, I think they just had the, well, I mean, that's a, that's a very big question. Um, fundamentally, I think there are, there are some irreducible differences between the sexes which are just not taken into account. I mean, this is, you, you should talk to Louise Perry about this. Her, she's, her book's coming out. I don't know, have you had Louise on? No, who is she? Um, she's, she? Oh, she's, she's a great friend of mine, another, another reactionary feminist. So I don't think she'll, I don't think she'll uh, hate me for describing her that way. Um, or, or, or adjacent anyway. She's, she's, she's got a book coming out called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, which is a feminist book. Um, and it's the feminist takedown. It's a feminist critique of the sexual revolution, which her, she argues very cogently from evolutionary psychology, amongst other things, has been a disaster for women. Fun, because fundamentally, men and women, you know, at scale, want slightly different things. Um, and they, or at least they prioritise slightly different things. You know, and that might not always be the case. And, you know, and, and, and I mean, as, as she put it to me the other day, you know, her view is that, you know, on the, at the individual level, the differences between men and women are not that great. But at scale, they're big enough that actually you need to you, you need to you need to treat men and women slightly different. Can you give me an example? Um, you, well, let's think. Um, that's a good example. Men are more violent at scale. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm married to a very lovely man. He is not a violent man. I dare say you're not a violent man. You know, most men I interact with on a daily basis are not violent men. Um, but at scale, men are more violent than women. You know, something like 97%, 99% of all sexual crimes are committed by men. You know, most of the most of the murderers in prison, most of well, most of the prisoners full stop are men. Um, I mean, you know, you, you, I'm sure you're familiar with all of these statistics, you know, and it's not it's not an accusation against you or any other individual man to point out that men are more violent. Um, so and and because of that, it, it does it it makes sense, for example, to treat male and female prison populations differently. You know, and that that opens out into a whole, you know, there are a whole whole series of minefields we could we could walk into there. Well, you um, <laughs> may not want to, but but just to just to keep the keep the thing on 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 why why the sexual revolution didn't work, um, it's because it was premised on the idea that men and women are basically the same, apart from some sort of trivial kind of topographical differences. Um, but it's just not true. And you, it's definitely not true when it comes to sex. You said in a different article similarly. Chivalrous social codes may feel condescending, but men are still statistically physically stronger and more violent than women. An assault on codes that encourages men to restrain their physical dominance may not wholly be to woman's advantage. So that's the fact that we can say, I don't need a man to open the door for me. We don't need to have this sort of power dynamic in a relationship typically. However, when you roll the clock forward and say, okay, what happens if you erode these and you get rid of these, you realize, well, maybe the second and third order effect of this was that, was that it was constraining some of the more malignant parts of yep. men's life. Is, yep. that, is that what you're saying? Yep. Exactly, exactly. I mean, in my, in my, I'll put it much more strongly since, I'm, since I might as, well, might as well have a go at getting cancelled this week. I've had two or three, two or three attempts already. Um, I think, I think attacking chivalry, um, as a set of social codes has been the biggest self-own that feminism is one of one of one of the most savage self-owns that feminism could possibly have come up with. It's been absolutely catastrophic. It was an incredibly fucking stupid idea. And it was it was brought about by a bunch of women who who was who felt safe enough doing it because they were they were fairly fairly civilized, fairly privileged, and they were confident that they could demand that the men in their lives would treat them well. And they didn't think about they didn't think about men and women in different social contexts who maybe needed a, a, 
a clearer and more simplified set of guardrails. And they specifically didn't think about how much more vulnerable it would make the women in, you know, perhaps, you know, among people who who need a simpler set of guidelines. Are you know, talking about maybe the, the, the difference between a middle and upper class versus a, a, a typical working class environment? Well, I mean, it's not, it's, it's obviously oversimplistic to, to, to break down, you know, educational achievement, you know, to, to say that that map always invariably maps onto cognitive ability and educational achievement and, you know, impulse control and so on and so forth. But there are some correlations. Um, and when you're talking, I mean, the, the sort of the, the sort of free for all and, you know, everybody should just, you know, be themselves um, edit, which which is great, you know, amongst a bunch of, you know, young university graduates who've sort of who've been broadly brought up with decent manners and told and taught to go to bed regularly on, on the same time every night. You know, it's a completely different ballgame to people who, for example, you know, don't have poor impulse control and, you know, not very much education or have grown up in a violent or traumatic or impoverished family, you know, who have who have a history, you know, have a history of interpersonal violence already. And, you know, saying saying to somebody like that, oh, you should just follow your heart is a, you know, is going to produce different results. And if you then say, oh, and you don't, and you don't need chivalry, you don't need codes of chivalry which says don't hit, which don't, which say don't hit women. You, you no longer need those, and in fact, it's 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 feminist to get rid of the codes which say men shouldn't hit women. Then it's not going to produce the it's not going to produce a good result. Well, presumably they didn't mean to get rid of um, explicitly get rid of don't hit women. It would have been don't hold the door open. But are you yeah, saying yeah, no, are no, you saying that downstream from that that's that was the inevitable conclusion that you got to? Well, I mean, you know, I'll, I'll dodge that very slightly by saying, by by pointing out that you know, choking and intimate violence is now normalised during sex. Was that by feminists? You know? Well, so certainly the you know, so sex positivity has been has been mainstream feminism since the nineteen eighties. So actually, yeah, you know, and there are there are bitter ongoing turf wars with you, not not any. Um, Within within feminism today, about uh, whether or not you know whether or to what extent interpersonal violence and you know how how that maps onto consent and you know don't whether don't yuck my yum is really enough to I don't know, whether, whether whether that's really enough to to account for you know the ways that the ways that an intimate encounter can be abusive without being non consensual you know it's it's very it's very volatile terrain. And and I think a lot of the re- one of the many reasons it's become so volatile is that there just aren't any rules anymore, and to a significant extent there aren't any consequences. In the sense that you can have the most degrading sexual encounter, but as long as you use birth control, chances are nothing nothing permanent will come as a result of it. So Which that was turn- oh okay. So you're saying that part of the sexual revolution you had um, physiologically the decoupling of having sex from making children. And then culturally, also, you had this decoupling of the sacredness around sex, the um, lack of well, non. But Virginia Ironside, um, who's a, a a journalist, who a longstanding journalist, you know, was was in her twenties in the nineteen sixties, and she wrote a few years ago about what that was like, and she and and she said that prior to the pill, it had been possible to say no to somebody coming onto you because there was always a risk of pregnancy, but and you. Know, I'm trying to, try, I can't remember the exact quote. We said, well, armed with the pill, it was basically, it was easier sometimes to just have sex with a man out of politeness to make him go away because they knew, they knew you were on the pill. 
And so, I mean, what other reason did you really have to say no? And so. Oh, wow. So the implication or uh, the male ego had one fewer self-justifiable or excusable reason for why men could have to swallow their own pride around this woman doesn't want to have sex with me because, wow, I never even thought of that. You, um, it, it made it orders of magnitude more difficult to say no to loveless or degrading sex because it, it could now potentially be consequence-free. So there was, no, there was no longer a material reason for a woman to hold out for a loving long-term relationship. Um, and I, I'm, I'm with Louise on questioning whether the long-term consequences of this have been, over, have been overwhelmingly positive for women. That is wild. I never thought of that before. You, uh, I, I heard you talk about the statistics the relationship between abortion and shotgun weddings as well yeah i mean that's one that's one the catholics are very fond of um it's a counterintuitive relationship but but it's it's fairly well documented um that in fact um the immediately after abortion after contraception became contraception and then abortion was legalized um well, the, the, the number of the number of abortions went up, and you would expect with contraception now widely available, you'd expect the number of abortions to go down. But in fact, what that, that wasn't quite what happened because um, you, you sort of have to think of it as a, as a difficulty of scale. You know, there was just more there, there was just more sex happening because it, because it was theoretically consequence free, um, and so even though the number of even even though the number of sexual encounters that resulted in accidental pregnancy was lower. Um, there were so many more of them that the absolute number of accidental pregnancies went up. Do you follow? Yeah, yeah. And then there was an implication for the man's uh, requirement to stay around because it was seen as... Yes. Can you explain that? Exactly. And and also because it was now possible to go and get an abortion if you were accidentally pregnant, the social pressure on men to then step up uh, went away. Um, so, so there was no longer an obligation on. There was no longer an expectation that if a man got a woman knocked up, um, he'd he'd be expected to marry her. Because the pregnancy um, was much more, or the birth, sorry, was much more her choice. Exactly, exactly. So, so because it because in ending the pregnancy was now an option. Um, it was it was sim- that similarly meant it was a, it was much more of an option for men to walk away. These two um, things <laughs> blow my mind. They absolutely blow my mind. This is like Rory Sutherland's level stuff where he's talking about, oh, well, here's the first order effect and maybe you can see half of the second order effect, but roll the clock forward five to 10 to 25 years and you have this externality that you had no idea was coming and it's completely terrible. Absolutely. And I mean, it's, you know, what, what we do with these conclusions, I don't, you know, I, I don't really have a firm view on that. Um, you know, I have, I, I have friends who are very firmly pro-life, you know, I'm, I'm, I have I, I wrestle with it. Um, I think it's a, it's an incredibly complex and incredibly fraught issue. And I'm and I'm also I'm also of the view that once a material change is there, um, you know, just saying we need we, we need to put this back in its box um, is 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 very rarely enough. You know, because once the technology is there, people are going to want to use it. Um, and and I think, yeah, I, I think just saying well we should put this back in its box may or may or may not actually have have the desired effect. Um, but you know. But I do think it's absolutely incumbent on us to think through what the actual second and third order effects have been of these absolutely monumental technological changes. Because in, in, in my view, um, the sexual revolution is, is on a par with the industrial revolution. You know? in, and in a sense, actually, Wendell Berry, the American writer, uh, describes, describes the, the, up, the consequences of the sexual revolution as being a kind of industrial, industrialization of sex. 
you know, they, a, a reordering, a reordering of sexual intimacy um, along uh, to the same parent to the same industrial paradigm. You know, suddenly it was open to the market. <laughs> I found a very, I found a very you know, a, a telling detail. And the same year that Hayek um, was arguing about, you know, the spontaneous you know, about the markets, just you know, the spontaneous order of markets. I think that's his phrase, spontaneous order. Um, what, what was the first was also the first um, anti-pornography conference organized by Andrea Dworkin in New York. Um, and I, and I, I just think it's fascinating that, you know, while this guy is holding up this idealized picture of markets as this spontaneous self-organizing force, right at the other end, you know, somewhere else in the picture, somebody else is, is, is waving a placard and saying, no, actually, there's this market which, is, which seems to be happening spontaneously, and we really don't like the order which it's, which it's bringing in. Talk, um, talking about the sexual revolution, then you speak about a—I uh, don't know whether it's an anti-sexual revolution or it's a sex-negative position that we're sort of finding ourselves falling into. Can you explain that? I well, I, mean, I don't really—I don't really think of myself as—I I, I don't really see the arguments that I make as being um, sex-negative at all. I mean, I've—I <laughs> made a—I made a pro-sex argument against um, against being public about your kinks. On the basis that you just enjoy them more if they're private, um, and the moment the, the you know the moment you start parading your your disgusting proclivities through town, you know they start they start seeming flat and boring, and you have to find something even more disgusting to get the same thrill. Um, so I mean, if you're going to, I mean, some people some people are going to have some people people like what they like, right? Um, but and I think you know the, the the way to keep that frisson of the forbidden is a healthy dose of repression. You know, that's that's the only way to keep it feeling forbidden. That's one you of know, your. So is it? Is that one of the dynamic, the porno dynamics yeah, the, laws? <laughs> the three laws of porno dynamics. Yes. Yeah. That there's what was it the the law of fap entropy? Yeah, the law of fap entropy. Can you explain what the, the law of fap entropy is for well, people? The, <laughs> <laughs> that, that's you know that that that's really that that's the law that says you know whatever it is that you start out wanking to is going to is going to start seeing seeming boring and you'll have to find something yet more disgusting um, to get the same thrill. Which is why it doesn't, you know, people can make all the arguments they want to about ethical porn, but you have to see if porn is a vector, you know, it's a it's a direction, not a not a series of not a static thing, and and you know you can start at ethical porn, but you'll be you'll be down there in the down there in the sewers watching blueberry porn before you know it. It's a thing. Don't even ask. Don't Google it. Really, don't Google it. Okay. 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 Uh, yeah, so yeah, anti anti sexual revolution. I think that you mentioned about you're seeing increasing numbers of sort of seventeen, eighteen, nineteen year old um, people, girls especially, who are kind of withdrawing from a hypersexualized world. You have a friend, yes. I think, who refu- took all of her bikini photos down from Instagram yeah. and wouldn't post photos yeah, yeah, where yeah. she's got her shoulders out and stuff like that. I mean, that seems yeah. like almost puritanical, you know, compared with what's typically been put forward in popular culture for young people. Absolutely. And I mean, I should, I should underline the fact that this is very subcultural at the moment. But my, my good friend, Catherine D, um, also known, known on the internet more as Default Friend, has been tracking this for a few years. You know, she writes a lot on um, internet fandoms and um, sex and relationships. And she's been, she's been tracking the, the rise of sex negativity, particularly in young women, for, for years. Um, it's... And, and, in a nutshell, young, young women have just had enough, you know, especially the girls who went through the tumbling years where it was all, don't, don't kink shame me, and then just found themselves in these violent and abusive encounters, which were supposed to be fun and just weren't. And there was no discursive space in which to say, no, actually, this was disgusting and upsetting, and I don't ever want to do it again because it's like, oh, don't kink shame me. 
And you know, if you're going through, you know, uh, there was one. I mean, it's it's been it's been deleted since, but there was a horrific, a horrific series of tweets that some some young woman put up. I mean, she was only in her early twenties, and this had happened to her, you know, sometime before. And she was saying, you know, I, 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 I had a relationship with this guy who liked you. Yeah, you know, and he was a dom. You know, but, you know, I woke up. I woke up one day to find him. You know, I, I sort of came came back to consciousness one night to find him shoving crushed up Adderall into my cup. You know, and this is supposed to be sort of you know kinky stuff, but but just what is that? Right, exactly, exactly. You know, or, or you know, he wanted to experiment with breath play, so he got steaming drunk and put me in a rear naked chokehold, and I passed out. You know, that's that's not that's not fun for anyone. You know, I don't know what's going on there, but that's not fun. And that's somebody who's gone a long way down the corner dynamics rabbit hole and is just, you know, needs to get his kicks somehow. Um, but then, and, and is sort of has perhaps kind of lost sight of the fact that that's a real human person that he's doing it to. Because, I mean, you hear horror, you know, I mean, again, don't do all this, but if you ever want to see, you know, what the, the suffering this causes to men, um, it's, you know, you don't have to spend very long on the NoFap forums um, to see to see, you know, that some of these guys are really struggling with it. I mean, I, I, I salute every single one of them for trying because it's, you know, they've, they've had their sort of dopamine receptors hacked by this stuff sometimes for years, and they're, and they're, trying, to, they're trying to kick the habit. And it's an extraordinarily difficult thing to do, you know, when your brain has been rewired by it to the point where, you know, you, you can't get off except in a very, in a, in a particular, from a particular angle whilst thinking about something incredibly baroque. Um, yeah, that you've got to do you, some sort of mental jujitsu mindfulness exercise in a right. desperate attempt to put yourself in an aroused state. Yeah, 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 yeah. And this is this is well documented. You know, this isn't just an this isn't anecdotal. This this seems this happens a lot. Um, and these and these guys and and once you're once you sort of you know once you sort of wank yourself into that kind of a paralysis, you know, you you, you can't have an intimate relationship with somebody. Not really. You know, until you've got yourself, until you've rewired your brain again. Because I mean, how are you ever supposed to be intimate with another human being? You know, if if you can only if you can only get off while sort of standing on your head and thinking about blueberries or whatever it is. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's I think it's horrendous. I think I think it's absolutely monstrous. So rolling rolling the clock forward from there, are you? Do you think that we're going to see more of this? I, I don't know what you would call it, like an anti-sexual revolution or a, a re-sacredizing uh, of the intimate relationship, or is, is that what you would prescribe if you were to try and fix it? I, I, I sincerely hope so, but it's not, a, it's not a simple problem to fix. And I think, you know, in as much as, I mean, it, it's already happening. Um, I, I see it already happening, but it's, it's subcultural and it's generally coming from sort of what I, what I would call young counter-elites. Who's that? By which... Um, Who's that? Yeah, you know, kids who are in their twenties. I'd say probably, um, you know, young younger millennials or Gen Z, um, and who who don't buy into the whole mainstream thing. Who don't? Who don't? Who, who aren't fully signed up to the integrating mess? What Wesley Ann calls the integrated, vertically integrated messaging apparatus. You know, and who who read whatever it is? Who who, who sort of? I don't want to call them conservative because they're not exactly conservative. Um, they're, they're, I don't know quite what they are. Um, they're their own thing. But, but, but those, those kids, some of them, uh, are thinking this stuff through very concretely. You know, some, some of the conclusions they come up with are frankly terrifying. What, like? But then, you know, I'm not, I'm, <laughs> I'm not even going to go there. Like, I'll, I'll, I'll write about it. I'm not doing that on the podcast, so I'll get myself okay, to okay. talk. Um, 
But um, but again, you know, I'm not in their shoes, so you know, what can I? Well, I can't. Really, what can I say? Really, I, if I was there, maybe I'd be I'd be forming the same views. Um, but yeah, I, I think I see I see you know young younger sort of countercultural people, you know, taking taking very firm views on this and being and lot. I don't know. It's sort of among among that cohort. I see it sort of going in two directions. You know, people either go radically. You know, they they either go full nuclear war on relationships. You know, and there are various different ways you can do that. You can go you can go full on hedonistic. Um, you can go all out for the you know the victory of one sex over another. You know, you, you know, sort of girl boss only fans type or alternative. You know, the pickup artist thing is another is another variant on that. It's just about you know instrumentalizing, defeating, and you know symbolically humiliating the opposite sex. You know, to me that seems to be the kind of you know the the the, the principal mood. You know, and you're you're more interested in kind of keeping the score for, with respect to your male friends than you are in actually sort of interacting with the human. And I, and I think you know there are. There are male, there are male coded and female coded versions of this, in my observation. You know, the the, the girl boss only fans thing is 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 in a sense, you know, just a mirror image of the pickup artist thing. It's adversarial, right? It's taking the primary, yeah. uh, typically the primary source of value that the opposite sex had, and then weaponizing your ability to manipulate that. So men weaponizing their ability to get women's bodies and women weaponizing their ability to get men's resources. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and I'm finding it really, really striking that um, there are, you can find almost exactly the same um, comparison, you know, exactly the same attacks on marriage in feminist writing as in incel and pickup artist writing. They all, they all, they all hate marriage. They all see it as no better than prostitution and think it should be replaced with a more, with a franker and more, more, more market-based, in fact, version of exchange. There we are. We're back at the war on relationships, you know. And in, in a sense, that sort of, you know, the, the this, this effort to, to, to break down any possibility of solidarity between men and women, um, and replace it, replace it with something that's transactional and instrumental. Um, and can you know, and you know, can be ordered, you know, to to the logic of you know wages, or or commerce, or you see, it, as you you see it, as you say, coming from both sides, you know, it's 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 older than it's older than social media, you know. I would, I, it's probably older than the sexual revolution, or it definitely accelerated with the sexual revolution. Um, and I, I sort of feel like we're reaching some kind of an end, some. I honestly don't know how much worse it can get without the human race just, just sort of losing losing the ability, like without us all just losing the ability to talk to one another or you know form families full stop. That was the yeah. that was the end point. So the last time that I was stood here in Austin, I was having a conversation with a guy called Vincent Haranam, who I've mentioned twice today, and I'm going to continue to uh, force feed traffic to him in the way that he precisely doesn't want to have happen. He is the most pseudonymous man I've ever met, and yet. I'm going to continue to get people to go and look at his stuff. Um, and the end point that we came to, he's done a big, deep data dive. He's a data scientist that's looked at the um, relative attraction rates, what's happening on dating apps, so on and so forth. And the outcome really is pretty terrifying, especially when you look at the um, population projections, uh, not just in the West now as well. Like China's in a pretty good place, a pretty bad place with this as well too. But... <clears throat> There's not a very 
positive, rosy outlook, the apocalyptic way that we started talking about Twitter at the beginning looks uh, paradisal in comparison with the future for relationships, I think. And um, I-, I remember reading this article from uh, Kat Rosenfeld, I think she's called, and she was. I think you've spoken about this too, which is in order to make something attractive and um, for there to be excitement in a relationship, there needs to be a little bit of uncertainty and a small amount of uh, danger might be the wrong word, but at least a little bit of uncertainty and some sort of play between the two people. And there's two things that are going on at the same time. One is this complete liberalization of don't kink shame me. And at the same time, this sort of equivalent of helicopter or snowplow not parenting, but uh, sexual norming to the point where you get this consent porn. And I learned recently that there is a push for a blockchain of consent, which would be able to track every single degree of consent that you would be able to tumble down. So you have these two uh, sort of diametrically opposed but parallel um, dynamics moving at the same time. In order for me to get uh, most people to get excited you're going to need some degree of uncertainty and excitement and play between the relationship and yet at the same time you have this helicopter situation where any slight discomfort needs to be pushed out of the way uh and you mix that in with the pornification of everything and access to only fans and women being able to commodify men and men being able to sexualize women and it's not good it's not good It's not good. What do you think we should do, Chris? The only solution that I've come up with is putting marriage back up on a pedestal. Um, I think that you're going to struggle to pull women back from the very recently acquired position of um, equity in society. Uh, You know, by 2030, you're going to have two women for every one man at a four-year U.S. college, on average at the moment between the ages of 21 and 29 women earn 1111 pounds more per year than a man all of these sorts of things and you have this hypergamous nature which is obviously kind of like the thing that the manosphere like gets its kicks off it's increasingly difficult for women that are raising up through their own competence hierarchy to find a man that is equally or more competent than them because young women are outperforming men in a bunch of different domains at the moment so and also saying girls you should settle for less like that that meme is not going to take hold telling girls that you like Joe Schmo is the guy for you but if you make it less about the partner and less about the commodification of that less about oh what's their Instagram follower count or what sort of car do they drive and you make it more about well I want somebody that is able to provide that's going to be a good father that's going to be a good member of my uh my extended family too that my parents are going to like that's going to be reliable like that institution of marriage was what wrapped that up and made it something beyond just the quantifiable metrics of success. And I think that you can, that's the first part. The first part is to negate some of the hypergamous nature that that women have, and rightly so, they want to find the, the, the right man for them, um, by making it slightly less about the man's quantifiable metrics of success and um, much more about the institution of family relationship so on and so forth and then jeffrey abolish Ma- big romance big romance precisely abolish big romance yes exactly we need to get rid just, of it just, just nuke it um and then 
Jeffrey Miller, the evolutionary psychologist, one of the guys that did all of his all of this stuff in dating dynamics, he told me that you can hack hypergamy in a really smart way in the bedroom and also around the house by just doing role play. He said that the human brain, and this is something that makes complete sense, you don't need to have an actual power differential in a relationship all the time because you can fake yourself into believing that there's one there. You know, if you've got a, the, the high-powered boss bitch, PhD, half a mil a year woman with a man who is the lower earner in the household, and yet you flip that polarity in the bedroom, the human brain doesn't really know. It's not like, oh, th- th- this is just a game that we're playing. It doesn't really know. So you can use those tricks. So those would be my two. Uh, <laughs> more power play in the <laughs> power play in the bedroom uh, to flip hypergamy, and then the re. Um, pedestalization of marriage as an institution those are my solutions what do you think yeah i agree i mean i have a i have a whole probably completely unprintable thesis about why why bdsm has been so has become so popular i mean but i think it's a sort of it's it's an involuntary uh it's an involuntary backlash against there being too much equality between the sexes in fact people just like a power dynamic and you can't, and you're not going to be able to get rid of that. And the more you repress it, the more appealing it becomes. I mean, this is this is one of the laws of porno dynamics, isn't it? You know, every 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 taboo has an equal and opposite category of porn. And <laughs> at the moment, the the, the 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 moment the moment you make you make power dynamics, the the, the moment you make you you put equality on a pedestal. You know, I mean, what what do you think is going to happen in the bedroom? People are going to sexualize power imbalances, and so you it's going to feel taboo and so, forbidden. Yeah. So the more the more egalitarian society becomes, the more the more kink, the more the, the more kinky people's sex lives are going to be. And I think I think we just need to embrace the fact that you know power, power dynamics. People just like power dynamics, and we ought to lean into them more. And we should just make them real, and we should do it without safe words, but lovingly, properly. What's your solution? And, 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 and no, no, I will not elaborate. I mean, I, I think we should abolish big romance. I also think we need more single sex spaces for both sexes. Um, and I'd actually lean harder into that for men than for women. What, like? I think one of the most disastrous things that's happened that's happened to men in the last three or four decades is that the number of the number of spaces where men can be men together without the company of women has got has really shrunk. Now, I, I mean, I can't speak to that from in a first person sense, obviously, because I'm I'm a front hole person. Um, but it's it's very clear to me, thinking about my male friends and just just from observation and from listening to listening to men speak, it's it's just obvious there aren't very many. You know, unless you unless you're on a football team, or you know. Unless you unless you play a sport, or you know there are, there are, there are some limited other contexts which will probably still be mostly male or all male. Um, there just aren't there aren't very many places where where men can talk amongst themselves without without women, and that that seems that seems like it could be a problem to me because I mean I have no idea what men talk about amongst themselves, but it seems right to me that 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 should be a thing. Um, and it's possible, you know. It seems it also seems likely to me that there are there are kinds of social encounter and kinds of communication which are going to happen in that context, which I have no idea about, um, but which are probably quite important to men. And that if you don't do, you know, if those things aren't there, then you know men are going to be sad. You know, this all this none of this seems to me like it's rocket science. Um, and you know, and my observation, just looking at the numbers, is that men are sad at the moment. You know, the suicide rate has never been great, and it's getting worse. Um, you know, men, men, men are not doing men are not doing great at the moment. Um, and you know, if if we want good husbands, you know, that's that's an issue for women as well. It's an issue for everybody. It's a human issue. You know, if we're if things are 
you know, and, and I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure somebody will come along and be like, oh, you know, she's all like, oh, what about the men? You know, women suffer as well. Yeah, of course, of course, that's true. But you know, the so pain isn't a pie. You know, one person does one, one group doesn't get less of it. One, one isn't, you know, so one, one group isn't de- deprived of suffering and status just because another group is suffering as well. You know, it's not a, <laughs> there isn't a, suffering really isn't a limited resource in this world. Yeah, the zero sumness um, of suffering. I mean, that's that's exactly what what you see when you try and have this discussion online. You know, it's, it's uh, this is your job, right, to memify everything. But you would be <laughs> able to create a flowchart of the way that um, discourse moves forward when somebody tries to put forward either women are suffering or men are suffering. Um, and with the men are suffering one, it's typically something to do with uh, in in the mixer would be um, I thought you just needed to man up, bro, sort of um, small dick energy, or you need to you need to get your act together. Uh, and then this is uh, just a rehabilitated. So asking for male only spaces, this is a rehabilitated version of excluding women from powerful conversations that men just want to have again. It's like really tropey. And every time that you see somebody do this online, right. you can predict what's going to be the the pushback. And you go, well, this is why we're not actually making any genuine progress towards anything because it's just the same horseshit arguments just like spat out well, every lovely. single time. You know, if a if a hand if the price of reducing the suicide rate across working class men is that a small number of female barristers and CEOs get excluded from the old boys network, I'm okay with that. You know, I think there's a class dimension to this which often gets left out. And and the and the the women who are being who are pushing for entrance entry to all of the old boys networks, you know, as kind of you know arguing very cogently from their own economic interests. But you know that the subset of women who are barristers and CEOs and gold bosses is relatively small, and the subset of men who are you know just people with jobs and women who are just people with jobs is considerably larger. And if you if you break down single sex spaces in the interests of you know of the elite. Um, and in the process, destroy important social spaces for everybody else, then I'm not sure that's a good trade-off. And I, I, I think that's one we could usefully look at again. You talk about this to do with the number of women that want to be stay-at-home mums versus those that want to work and those that are in the middle that want to have a blend between the two as well. Yeah, um, I mean, that's a, that, that, that study is actually, it's, a, it's 20 years old, so, and I, I hope somebody will come up with something more recent. But um, this is Catherine Hakim, who's a sociologist, did some research into what women actually want, given the choice when it comes to work. Um, and, and according to her findings, there are maybe twenty percent who who really just want who really want to be mums. They want to be in the home, and maybe twenty percent who really want to be girl bosses. And everyone else um, kind of would, would would like a nice mixture, please. I mean, anecdotally, when I think of the you know fairly normie middle class mums who kind of my social circle, you know, at school pick up with me or whatever, that's true. You know the there are, there are some who work full-time, but most of them would quite like to have a relationship with their children and see them for more than an hour once a week. Um, you know, mo- most, most, most people don't have careers, they have jobs, you know, of both sexes. You know, there's a, there's a small minority who have careers, you know, and are willing to trade off the amount of time they spend with their kids in pursuit of their career. But most people, most people have jobs, and, you know, there's some bits of it are fun and some, of it, some bits of it suck. And they quite like spending time with their kids as well. You know, it's, it, again, it's not rocket science. It's quite common sense. I'm not saying anything which ought to be controversial at all. What was the insight that you explained to do with how the UK government pushing their primary 
um, women were here for you policy to be more assisted childcare was playing into that. It was to basically encouraging women that uh, their primary role should be in careers. Yeah, I think it was. No, I seem I seem to remember that at the last election, you know, when it came to when it came to offering something to women, every single one of them, all three of the major political parties, you know, competed for how much more childcare they could offer. You know, nobody nobody offered, for example, to extend maternity leave or. You know, there was, there was some talk about, you know, making paternity leave more flexible, which I support, even although I think uptake is a bit patchy on that. But perhaps that's a that perhaps that's a medium term cultural change thing. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the 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 reflex, you know, which is perhaps understandable from from the kind of women who become MPs. You know, if you think about the sort of personality type who's going to who's going to end up in in elected to parliament anyway, um, is the, the the assumption is generally. That, that what women need is more childcare, um, and it's 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 considerably rarer amongst MPs to find somebody who's willing to stand up and say, well, what if mothers actually want more time at home with their children? What if some mothers want more time at home with their children when they're young? You know, pretty much the only person, the only MP I've seen who's willing to who's willing to stand up and say that, or even come close to saying it, is Miriam Cates, who's a I forget she's she's Conservative MP, one of the Leeds boards, I think, um, but she's she's really an outlier. On that, and pretty much everybody else is just all you know, the full-on girl boss. But it sounds primitive, fine. right? That's why. <laughs> but why? Well, because that's I mean, how it would be why? interpreted by the press. What are you trying to do? Are you trying to re-enable uh, women's ability or the um, their predisposition to be seen as purely mothers? That their role is just to give birth to women and then make sure that the dinner's on the table at six p.m. That's the unsophisticated no, but- way to look at it. <laughs> I mean, you know, one, one pushback, which I, I, I doubt, you know, I'm not going to put in the words of Miriam, in the mouth of Miriam Cates because I don't know what she'd say to this. Um, but, but again, you know, I mean, you say that like it's a bad thing. You know, what's so bad about doing? I've been a stay-at-home mother. It's great life as long as you get on. As long as you have some, enough funds and you get on with your spouse, being a stay-at-home mum is really nice. You know, it's. I mean, you're your own boss. Like, you know, really, what's not to like? You know, it's, it's, I, I struggle to understand why anybody would want to. Would, would think that's terrible. I'm with you. Um, but that's just, but, but that's not how it gets framed. And I mean, you know, again, I'm here I am, here I am working. I sort of started by accident now. Here I am. Um, so, <laughs> so it's complicated, you know. I, I sort of fell into doing something that I loved and now, and now here I am. Um, but, you know, but it's, it's one thing, it's one thing making sacrifices for a career that you love um and you know with with the help of a supportive partner um and it's another thing altogether um you know being being offered more childcare by the government so you can spend eight hours rather than six hours a day putting packets through a scanner in a supermarket instead of seeing your children you know i, I yeah i i just i just struggle to see how you know I, i'm not convinced that every woman in that situation would see that as doing them a favor I guess is what I'm saying. You know, may, maybe there are other possibilities too. Mary Harrington, ladies and gentlemen, people want to check out your Substack and follow you on Twitter, which they absolutely need to do. Where should they go? Um, look me up at reactionaryfeminist.com or, you know, or search that on Substack. You'll find me there, reactionaryfeminist.substack.com. I'm moving circles on Twitter. It's, this has been fun. Thank you for having me. It's been really, really great. I'm looking forward to the book coming out. If you can hurry up and write it, yeah. please. <laughs> Uh, that would be great. Yeah, I need to get some sleep and get on with it tomorrow. War on relationships chapter. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you very much, Mary. All right. Thank you.
Thank you very much for tuning in. I really enjoy Mary's writing and her dry insight around the uh, TikTok dancing through the apocalypse that's going on at the moment. Uh, Don't forget that you might be listening, but not subscribed. And if that's you, you need to go and press the subscribe button because it's the only way that you can ensure that you will not miss an episode and it supports the show and it makes me very happy. So open your podcast app and and press subscribe. Thank you. Don't forget that you can receive $150 off your order from The Cold Plunge by going to thecoldplunge.com and using the code MW150 at checkout. You can also get a free program guide and schedule a call with a Praxis advisor to learn more about their careers program at discoverpraxis.com slash modernwisdom. And you can get a year's free supply of vitamin D, five free travel packs, free pots, shakers, and a 60-day money-back guarantee by going to athleticgreens.com slash modernwisdom. I'll see you next time.